Tenekoto, Namai, Hairamai. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Walk in the Shadowlands podcast. Let me be your guide as we take a walk into the realms of the unexplained, of the paranormal, of things that go bump in the night and haunt your dreams. Your hosts. I'm Marianne. Thanks so much for joining me today, tonight, whatever time it is, wherever you're living in this beautiful world of ours. Sit back, relax, let me be your guide as we walk into the Shadowlands together and see what awaits us there. Kia ora. hi everyone. Thanks for joining us. Whether you're a first-time listener or follow our podcast, it's lovely to have you all here today. Picture this, it's night time. There's a gentle breeze blowing outside, causing the branches of a tree to lightly scrape your window. In the distance, a dog barks. All is relatively peaceful. You wake up with a start and have this inexplicable urge to go to your window and open it. Your diaphanous white nightgown flown around you as almost in a trance-like state, you walk haltingly to the window, hair loosely flowing down your back. You have no control over your body. You unlatch and fling the windows open, letting the breeze wash over you, making your gown cling to your heaving breasts. All of a sudden, this fog starts rolling in through your windows from an otherwise clear night. You stand there in your transfixed state, unable to comprehend what is actually happening. Then, standing in front of you, is a tall gentleman dressed in a suit and cape. You gasp in shock, whilst at the same time, you are totally bewitched and enchanted by his gaze. Unable to tear your eyes away from his, next minute he sweeps you into his arms, whilst you look longingly into his eyes. He leans down and bites you in the neck, sweeping his cape over you to cover both the deed and to protect our delicate sensibilities. At that point, the spell he had over you is broken and you attempt to struggle, but alas, it's too late. Dracula has you firmly and you are a lost cause as he drains your body of its vital fluids. At least, that's how the Hammer Horror movies and that brilliant actor Christopher Lee portrayed the vampire in the movies I loved when I was growing up as a child. Of course, the social standards were way different then, and vampire movies, whilst being created to give people a real scare, also had a definite sexual subtext, that subtext which has continued, albeit a tad more blatantly in these later years, with movies like Anne Rice's Interview with a Vampire, that hints of homoeroticism, or Underworld, where the vampire hero is obvious in her dominant sexuality as shown by the tight black leather outfit she wears, and her kick-ass attitude. Bram Stoker's Dracula remake in 1992, one of my favourite ever vampire movies, where Gary Oldman, who brilliantly plays Dracula, 
His lonely vampire soul is determined to reunite with his lost love Mina, played by Winona Ryder. In that particular movie, they made him a more sort of sympathetic character. To a degree. But even most recently, with the sparkling vampires of that dreadful, dreadful series of movies, the Twilight franchise, oh, I'm not, I'm not actually, despite my words, going to go into the sexual subtext of vampire movies, but over the decades from the very first vampire movie ever made in 1922, a black and white silent flick called Nosferatu played very ably and chillingly for the time by one Max Shrek. The vampire has changed from this feared, ugly-looking creature to a sexually desirable but also predatory one, at least until his or her instincts take over. Only then does the monster reveal its true form. If you do a quick internet scholarly search, I feel pretty sure you'll find many documents that go over the sexual subtext aspect of this film genre. But ultimately, they are just movies. And many of them not even particularly good ones, I can hear you say. Yes, Yes, this is indeed true. There are many, many rubbish ones out there, some excellent ones as well, all catering to our fears and for some, our erotic fantasies. But these movies all started from not merely that original book written in 1897 by Abraham Stoker, although he really brought the vampire to prominence in an otherwise very sexually repressed cultural time period. But... Is there more to the vampire legend than merely his Dracula book? And was it originally meant to be presented as fiction? Not, according to a 2018 article in that prestigious magazine, The Time. There's a link to that article from this episode's page on the podcast website, www.walkingtheshadowlands.com. Is there perhaps some truth to this story that simply won't die? No pun intended. So make yourself comfortable. Make sure your lights are on and your doors and windows are all locked tightly. Let's walk into this very dark and foreboding part of the Shadowlands together and see what awaits us there. Are you ready? Then let's begin. Movies aside, the vampire, or whatever name is used for them in different cultures, feature throughout the world, retold in hushed tones around campfires or in someone's home, legends, myths, or reality. These creatures are found in almost every single culture. Perhaps first, for those who don't know, I should talk about the predominant description of what a vampire is, as there are many different interpretations dependent on the cultural region of the world. But most have the vampire being a walking corpse, a dead but undead creature who survives by consuming human or animal blood, if no humans are available, or by taking one's psychic energy or breath. Physically, they almost always have extremely sharp pointed teeth or fangs, which they use to tear or bite their victims in order to remove the blood. In legend, vampires are said to retire to their graves during the day, sleep and rise as soon as the sun sets to look for victims. 
They are typically said to have extremely pale skin and, dependent on in what culture or where in the world the story is told, they range from being extremely horrible and grotesque-looking to stunningly beautiful in a very unnatural way. Their bodies are said to not cast a reflection or shadow, which means that often they can't be photographed or recorded on any type of film, or indeed seen in a mirror. This was originally thought to be because mirrors back in the early days were coated with sulphur on the back, and sulphur being something that vampires aren't particularly fond of. According to legend, there are many ways that a person can become a vampire. The most common, as cited in most vampire movies, is to be bitten by a vampire. Other ways in different cultures include through sorcery, or by committing suicide, catching some illness, or even having a cat jump over a person's corpse. In some cultures, there's a belief that if a baby is born with teeth, or on or around Christmas and Epiphany, there is a predisposition towards becoming vampires. In legend, vampires don't die of disease or of any human illness. They are said to have faster-than-human healing capabilities, should they be injured in some way. They can be destroyed by a wooden stake through the heart, decapitation and exposure to sunlight. In Christian belief systems, they can be repelled by garlic or crucifixes, running water or holy water. And in some cultures and most modern depictions of vampires, they can only enter your home by invitation of the owner or occupier of that property. In some cultures, vampires can be distracted by scattering rice, seeds or grains. The vampire apparently has obsessive-compulsive disorder and is compelled to stop and count the rice, grains or seeds, giving the victim time to escape. So, that's a description of the traditional vampire as seen in many different cultures and known by different names depending on that culture, but do vampires actually exist? Are they real living or non-living beings? And do they really require the consumption of human blood in order to survive? Certainly, there are medical conditions such as porphyria, which causes an extreme sensitivity to sunlight, along with causing the gums to recede, making some teeth look like fangs. People with this disease also often have urine that is very dark red, leading, in olden days, people to surmise they were drinking blood. And finally, most with this disease have an aversion to garlic, this is because the high sulfur content of garlic could lead to an attack of porphyria, leading to acute pain for the sufferer. So that is perhaps one reason why people may have been seen as vampires. Another illness that has been linked to the vampire story is that of rabies. Rabies is a very nasty, painful and ultimately terminal if untreated disease. You generally only get this from a bite from an affected animal, such as a bat, dog, squirrel, etc. This disease causes a number of bizarre behavioural changes, some of which are not unlike those a vampire is supposed to display. 
And lastly, there's Renfield syndrome or Renfield syndrome, which is a psychiatric disorder where the sufferer has an obsession with drinking blood, otherwise called clinical vampirism. Some serial killers displayed this particular syndrome. But these medical factors aside, do vampires really exist? Well, yes, actually they do. And they walk amongst us every day. Most likely we would not even know. But are they as portrayed in the movies and legends? Well, perhaps not entirely. In these two episodes, I talk with a very special guest, one who identifies as a practicing ethical, emphasis on ethical, vampire. Michelle Bollinger is an occult expert, presenter, singer, psychic and author of more than 30 books on paranormal topics. She's been featured on TV shows including A&E's Paranormal State and the Travel Channel's Portals to Hell as a psychic medium and occult expert. Michelle's non-fiction research in books like The Dictionary of Demons and The Psychic Vampire Codex has been sourced in television shows, university courses and publications around the world. A person of many talents, Michelle has performed with musical groups including the dark metal band Urn and the gothic duo Noxicana and designed immersive live-action RPGs for companies such as Wizards of the Coast. In the 1990s, Michelle was editor of Shadow Dance, a magazine dedicated to the dark fringe culture that has since been reborn as a podcast. Michelle's made appearances on CNN, A&E, Fox News, Reels and the History Channel. Nowadays, Michelle teaches online classes and creates a variety of resources for personal psychic development. Michelle lives near Cleveland, Ohio with three cats, a few friendly spirits and a library stuffed full of books. I'd like to welcome my guest, Michelle Bollinger. for agreeing to talk with us today. I say this so often to my guests, but I've been really excitedly waiting for this opportunity to chat with you. I first saw you on Penn State many years ago, and you the, the very first time I saw you, you impressed me so much. 
with your genuineness it came off you in waves with your straightforwardness and your no mucking around I really <laughs> liked that I really appreciated that you were so grounded and so down to earth and then later I found out other things about you that were really really interesting and we'll get into that a little bit later but for now thank you for agreeing to talk to us and welcome to Walk in the Shadowlands. Thank you for the warm welcome. So now for those listeners who don't know Michelle has been a familiar face on many television shows for quite a number of years now and aside from that, she's a prolific author, and I've been trying, but I failed to completely get through your psychic codex, um, your psychic vampire codex before. I was hoping to get it finished before we talked, but I read uh, over half of it, so I did pretty well in the time that I had available to me, and I found it an incredibly, incredibly interesting book, but before we get into that, can you tell us, please, a little bit about your background, where you come from, your family history? So I was raised by a family of second and third generation Irish immigrants. Uh, and so the religion was Catholicism, but very heavily mixed with Irish folklore. Uh, so a belief in psychic ability and second sight, um, the fairies and, and all of the sort of things that you can imagine from, from Irish folklore were part of things that were discussed in the household. Uh, I was born with a heart defect. So the first five years of my life were very touch and go. Um, my life expectancy was five. Right. Uh, and there were uh, surgeries which at the time were experimental uh, so I had multiple surgeries, including two open heart surgeries before the age of five, um, mm -hmm. which also meant because I was a really precocious kid, we had a lot of conversations about life and death, what comes after. Uh, and because there was no certain guarantee that I would see my fifth year, whatever I wanted to explore or learn or talk about, I was, I was indulged with. So, you know, I was treated like an adult mm. in a lot of ways. And I was an early reader. Uh, they, they just kind of like gave me free reign at, you know, libraries and whatever books we had available. So I had this, this unique background where, you know, I have one foot in the physical world and one foot in the spirit world and a family that, you know, has a history and an acknowledged lineage of psychic abilities that also encouraged learning and a sort of scholarly approach to things. Uh, and, you know, I took all of that with me uh, as, as I moved forward through, you know, the, the decades, uh, pursuing a degree in comparative religious studies with a concentration in psychology of religion, because I'm, I'm less interested in theology and more about why people believe what they believe and what that does for them, how that shapes their emotions, mm. uh, their habits, the way that they interface with one another in the world. Uh, and that's that's kind of me in a nutshell. Wow. And I, as I used to be a cardiothoracic and vascular surgical nurse myself, so hearing you talk about your heart issues as a child, I totally understand mm. your parents' fear for you. 
and what you went through as a child. I have a measure of understanding. So obviously it was a pretty traumatic and painful time. So you you are, as we would say here in New Zealand, a member of the Zipper Club. I am. I am a member of the Zipper Club. Uh, and not everybody knows that, uh, like like what that means. But uh, they, uh, so since you know the, the background for it, it was a ventricular septal defect wow. mm-hmm. and it was the early 70s. Mm-hmm. So it was... There was a lot of like, well, we're not quite sure. Uh, they, they didn't even have a heart-lung machine that could sustain somebody under, I think, uh, a certain weight, wow. which was why it was. So so they couldn't perform the final surgery until I reached a certain weight. And I couldn't keep weight on because the heart was so bad. And it was just this oh, sort gosh. of like touch and go. It was, it was a lot. A lot. <laughs> it was, it was, a lot, and in the early 70s, I started nursing in the early 70s. So I remember what little there was available back then compared to when I left nursing in 95. It was quite quite a bit of a marked difference in how they treat cardiac issues. So, yeah, it, it, and all the rehab time that you would have had between surgeries so I can imagine that as a child this gave you a lot of time to ponder and research and to find your path really. Fortunately I was inclined to be a reader Mm -hmm. and a kind of you know quiet inside dwelling kid I mean I'm certain that my health contributed to that I couldn't go out and play with everybody but uh, it definitely gave me a lifelong love of reading and writing books. I, I was I was trying to make my own books from the time I was four onward. I was oh, wow. ridiculously precocious. Right, <laughs> right. And you've written numerous books, quite a number of really, really good books. The subject of vampires is something that has fascinated me, terrified me since I was a little kid. Uh, And so, you know, we're talking decades and decades and decades. And when I started my podcast, I, and this is the the ninth season of my podcast, I've wanted to do an episode on vampires since I started. Because there are so many misconceptions and so much fear out there, like there is with the Wiccan subject, like there is with many of the pagan subjects. There's just so much fear and misinformation out there that I wanted to do something that, because everybody has this idea that vampires are these blood-sucking creatures, and of course, movies have romanticized the vampire now so they sparkle in the daylight and whatever you know silly things but in all of that many people still feel that vampires are just fiction where actually vampires have been around for centuries and centuries and centuries in one form or another be that energetic vampires or other types Michelle maybe you could tell us what the different types of vampires are and how they operate. Oh, no, absolutely. So in in much the same way that we have modern witches, and there are folks who are, you know, witches, they might be born that way, they might learn how to do it, and they are distinctly different from the witches in fairy tales Mm -hmm. and the witches in Mm -hmm. folklore where they're, you know, these these horrible wizened hags that are just cursing their neighbours. But the word witch carries this this weight with it, this sort of magical archetype that has inspired and has been very useful for 
identifying a certain way of interfacing with magic and psychic phenomena. The vampire is the same. Uh, Darker overall by most people's perception, but that's not to say that dark is the same as evil. Where witches, especially modern witches, are very connected to the magic of the land and life and, and nature. The difference for vampires, for folks who identify with that as a magical archetype, there is that connection to the darker side of existence, one foot in the spirit world, a kind of intermediary state between life and death, or at least the ability to sort of move between those mentally, uh, a connection to the dark hours of the night and the, the mysteries that hold, uh, and also a sort of sense of immortality, but not in physical immortality. Right. Most of the folks in the vampire community that I know and have worked with over the years tie in with a sense of reincarnation, that they are old souls, that they have lived before, yes. uh, and that that is something they carry with themselves, incarnation after incarnation, and is part of why the idea of the vampire is relevant to them, mm. um, being something, again, beyond life and death. Uh, and there is also unavoidably that connection to feeding off of life force. Right. Uh, the, the word vampire wouldn't be you know, useful for this community at all if it weren't for that. Uh, now, that's probably the most intimidating thing. You're going to find most of the books about psychic vampires um, and in vampiric people out there right now on how to protect yourself from them. Right. I know when I was trying to sort myself out in my late teens and early 20s, that's all I found. Um, like Dion Fortune's Psychic Self-Defense uh, was one of the first ones. There were several others, but it was all vampires are real and vampires are bad and they're, they're psychic and they're astral and they can take your energy and here's how to protect yourself against them. And, you know, 19-year-old me was like, but what if you are one though? Like, what do you do? Like, I don't, I'm not taking from people without their permission, but I'd like to understand myself better. So, so what does that look like? What, what does that mean? So I define vampire um, in terms of like a vampiric living human being as someone who needs to regularly and actively take human vital energy right. in order to maintain their health and well-being. They may take it uh, through a couple of different ways. Uh, psychic vampires obviously are taking psychic energy, um, human vitality. Uh, and you can interpret that as chi, prana. There's, there's so many different cultural terms for the, the breath and life and energy that, that moves within and throughout us. There are folks in the vampire community who are blood drinkers, uh, and they fall generally into two camps. Uh, one, I think that they call themselves mostly medisang or medical sang, which is it, basically sanguine vampires, blood drinking vampires. Med sangs are the ones who believe that it's a purely physical material need, right. uh, medical need. Uh, and there's nothing metaphysical about it. There's nothing psychic or energetic. And in many cases, that camp of blood drinkers are actually kind of anti-psychic energy. Like they're, they're more atheistic, more material. material yeah. They're more atheistic or materialistic uh, in their approach to reality. It's, it's fascinating mm. 
because they still identify as vampires. They still uh, you know, recognize that there's this thing about them that's different. And from my, my, my religious studies background, that still falls under belief, but they don't see it that right. way. The other camp of sanguine vampires are those who believe that the blood is a focus, uh, the carrier and the way to connect to the same sort of vital energy that a psychic vampire is taking. Uh, and there are also some vampires who will mix that energetic feeding with uh, sex or sensual activities. Mm. And broadly, there's, there's a lot of different ways to take energy with people. It needs to be said that everybody, vampire or not, takes energy Absolutely. and gives energy. We're, we're in constant energetic exchange with one another, with our environment, with the world around us, the ground beneath our feet. You know, you go walking in nature and you are exchanging, you are engaging with that. You can do that passively or you can do that actively through meditation. Absolutely. There's some beautiful Taoist walking meditations that are like active ways of connecting to the trees and the land around you, giving energy and taking it back and just uh, letting it be almost a breathing exercise that is infused with the life around you. And you know, every interaction that we as embodied beings have, uh, intimate or angry, there's an energy exchange that happens. Sometimes it's uneven, sometimes it's fully reciprocal. Right. And what distinguishes vampirism is something about that person who is vampiric. There is a greater than ordinary need. Mm. Uh, enough of a need that it is noticeable that they, that they need to frequently take energy. Mm. Uh, if they're not aware of it, they do become the type of psychic vampires that the books warn about. They don't know what they're doing. They just find the most efficient way possible to take energy from people, which is usually inciting strong emotional reactions from people. Right. But that doesn't mean that you can't become aware of what you are. It doesn't mean that it's necessarily a bad thing. Um, for me, it's part and parcel of my psychic abilities. Right. Uh, and to some extent, uh, I, I view it, I think of my energetic uh, work as almost a bank account. So I cash really big checks. Mm -hmm. I do a lot of intense energy work, a lot of intense healing work. Um, I'm empathic. I do uh, a lot of psychic stuff, a lot of long distance and remote work, uh, dream walking. All of that takes energy. All of that takes power. Right. Uh, and to fuel that, uh, we're all taking from some source or another. And some of us have a more limited selection of sources we can draw on. True. Absolutely true. When you were talking about energy, when I was in my 20s, and I'm 65 now, when I was in my 20s, and I was just sort of awakening to myself, I realized that I was actually stealing energy from people in my desire to learn. And I didn't, rec it wasn't a conscious thing. And I felt really dreadful once I realized that I had been taking energy from these people and I didn't realize until one of my friends said god I always feel so drained after I visited with you and I would go away feeling wonderful and it was then that I realized what I'd done and it, I just felt so bad that I determined I would not do that to another person um, 
unconsciously. Uh, and, and I don't regard myself as a vampire, but it's all about energy exchange and I'm all about energy like you were talking about. And I recognised that at that point in my life, I needed that energy for whatever reason. And so I took it without regard, without conscious regard, my body just took what it needed. I haven't done it since to my conscious knowing. Hopefully I haven't. I'm, I make a point not to do that. In fact, I try to give like yourself, try to, it's got to be a fair exchange. But yeah, that, that just brought that memory back to me when you were talking about that. And it's so easily done. You don't have to be a vampire to do stuff like that. Yeah, well, and that raises a really good point uh, because throughout various points in our lives, we may find ourselves at a place where we need more energy than we can ordinarily sustain, yeah. either through chronic illness, uh, depression, there's something emotionally that we're going through, there's some other challenge that, again, that, that bank account balance yeah. is now in the red and we need to make up for it. And if we don't know if we're not conscious about our relationship with energy, we're going to take that however we need. Mm. Like the instinct for it is there. The ability is just in everybody. Mm. Uh, so to me, it behooves all of us to develop a healthy relationship with how we interface with the energy of others and ourselves. Like understand, you know, what are our peaks and valleys? You know, how do we move through the currents of energy in ourselves and our lives? Right. And recognizing that just because you may have a point where you are taking energy, it doesn't necessarily make you a vampire. Right. It may make you vampiric in that moment. Um, vampire in a lot of ways, much like the, the, the witch, uh, much like the witchcraft community, the vampire community uh, has for decades argued back and forth about like who is legitimately a vampire, who can call themselves right. this. Like those the identity po politics have been part of my life, like long before that was a term. <laughs> identity politics. <laughs> Yeah, I remember that identity <laughs> politics. Interesting. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Oh yeah, but 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 the idea of like who gets to call themselves right. and identify with. Where, when I'm talking about the vampire community, the vampire for those people is is a magical identity. Mm. In the same way that witch is a magical identity, that someone someone can do magic and not necessarily call themselves or consider themselves a witch. Right. And someone may have an inborn ability to do what we would think of as magic, but again, they're if they don't relate to that archetype as, as we, and as especially they understand it, then you know, it's not a label that they find useful. Uh, so within the vampire community, there are people that I think if we examined what their background was and what their abilities are, we might be tempted to say, well, well that's more shamanic mm -hmm. or that's that, well, why wouldn't you call yourself a witch? And some of it comes down to personal interpretation mm. and what symbols were most important to that person at the key point where they were resolving their relationship with their magical identity. Right. Right. That makes sense. Oh, that's so interesting. So, so therefore we have two types of vampires basically we have the psychic vampire which you identify as and we have the sanguine sanguine yeah sanguine, sanguine vampires are the ones who take the blood and i imagine between the two groups there's still a lot of politics 
a lot of politicking around beliefs and and dogmas and stuff like that. Yes, uh, you, you can't have uh, a community that, first of all, is exists on the fringe of belief in the first place, right. where you don't one have very strong personalities. Right. Uh, where you don't have yeah. uh, disagreements about how we interpret this and what this means. Uh, I became involved in the online vampire community in 1997 and ran into, uh, there was a, a key figure. She has passed on since. She had Marfan's syndrome in addition to everything else. Oh. She was a blood drinker. Um, she went by Sanguinarius online and she ran, um, to this day, probably one of the most resourced uh, websites for blood drinkers. Wow. And she was having none of my weird psychic woo-woo stuff. Like, like we, we just went at it. Uh, flame wars. I learned what a flame war was oh, <laughs> by wow. going back and forth with Sangi. Um, by the end of it, we were friends uh, and we recognized that our community was bigger than our differences. And it was less about you know, is a psychic vampire legitimate? Is a, a blood drinking vampire legitimate? We are united by the fact that this is a word that means something to us. And we are both providing services to our community to help folks who identify that. So, you know, um, but back in the day, oh goodness. And, and there are still definitely different sects, uh, splinter groups, there are certainly, um, so, so I am the author of one of the most widely recognized set of ethical guidelines for the vampire community, but the vampire archetype is steeped in some predatory and, and darker imagery, um, and it does appeal to certain groups. So there are a few um, magical orders and occult groups within the vampire community, several of which actually exist outside of the community. They, they, they eschew the community entirely because their idea of the vampire is fundamentally asocial, right. uh, where they actively teach vampirism as a type of predatory spirituality, mm -hmm. uh, completely against uh, any of the, the consent rules and the ethical guidelines that I've promoted since the 90s right. uh, but I, I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge that there are a few groups like that that do exist and that's one of the things I noticed when I was reading your book and that's why I never got it finished because I was taking notes as I was reading it so I've got these screens of notes and if I had just sat down and read it I would have had it finished but about the groups well actually what you said about ethics reading your psychic vampires codex I noticed completely how ethical it is and how it's totally about consent, consensual taking and the need to be ethical in your dealings with energy, taking energy from others. And the other thing that really jumped out at me is because it's something that my, my major work is with star people. I've been an experience in my entire life. Mm. And one of the things you said in the book just made me laugh because it's something that my star people have said to me so often. It's that humans need to label. We have to have mm -hmm. these labels. And it's very amusing to them that we have the need to label. And you mentioned in your book about the power of names and labels. And I found that really interesting. Well, they're, they're tools. Mm. And I think one of the things that I've seen folks 
get really hung up on is you need to recognize that your label is a tool, but and in, some, in, in a certain sense, you're using it to put your experiences into a box yeah. so that for a period of time, you have boundaries yeah. within which you can better understand it. But you shouldn't ever let your box become a prison. Absolutely. You know, remember that it's a tool. Remember that it's a label. Like, you know, when, when I say vampire, there's certain things that that fits with who and what I am. There are also so many things that fall outside of those boundaries and none of it's neat. Uh, and I, I, well, because, because of your, your primary source of working, one of, one of the, um, so within the vampire community, lots of people argue about like, well, why are people vampires? Like, like what's going on with that? Um, and like the simplest and most superficial explanation I can give to people who are, have um, the most rudimentary understanding of like energy and, and, and stuff is, you know, I, I was a sickly kid and I absolutely, and th this is true. I take some of that energy to balance out, to actively self-heal. Um, I am able to make my body do things that maybe it shouldn't be able to do given the start that it had right. and the limitations that it has. But also there are deeper aspects to that. I mentioned that everybody takes energy and everybody has different sources that they can connect to. Most of the folks who are vampiric in the community that I work in uh, find themselves predominantly limited to human vital energy because most of the energy from this place isn't something they connect with right. easily or readily. Mm -hmm. They have a hard time processing it. Mm -hmm. And you can interpret that however you wish, mm -hmm. but there is definitely a sense of a disconnect from here. Uh, so, you know, the natural like earth energies and things just don't quite work. Yeah. Uh, almost as if maybe we aren't always from around here <laughs> absolutely yeah and there are so many like i never really mixed with the ufo community i pretty much kept myself to myself until i i started this podcast well i've always spoken out i've always been a like you were uh, talking out about my experiences i've never not done that but until i started this podcast i, I sort of really didn't mix with that community because I didn't want my knowing tainted by other people's opinions, especially, mm -hmm. especially people who um, put themselves out as authorities and they haven't actually experienced anything. Yeah, I, I in addition to like the, the Irish stuff, I, I grew up with an uncle um, who was kind of my adopted dad for a while. And he was a... An, he was in the Air Force. He was a Vietnam vet, and he had had some connection to Project Blue Book. He was super into UFOs. We went UFO watching. Um, it was it was also like a, you know, we'd go fishing, we'd go hunting, and we would go UFO watching. Those were our hangout times. Uh, and I have always found the idea of physical craft a little bit consternating, yeah. like because I'm like but it's so much easier to just travel other ways. Yeah. Like, really, that's not hard. Exactly. You're absolutely right. And I tell people all the time that not all star species need ships. Only beings at a certain level of development use ships. There are many species who travel by the power of thought. Ships are unnecessary for most advanced species. No, it should be a pretty simple 
thing to to consider because just just with psychic abilities, the the sort of remote work a person can do, yeah. um, you know, in energy work, and you can do energy healing to somebody on the other side of the globe. Absolutely. You can connect to one another, dream walking, uh, just really space, physical geography are very easily surmounted absolutely they're just man-made limitations can i just ask you uh uh, just to sidetrack a little bit for my listeners who don't know can you explain what dreamwalking is please oh yeah uh so dreamwalking was the term taught to me by another fourth grader so a little 10 year old kid um came up to me and taught me how to do this thing and they called it dreamwalking uh i had been a lucid dreamer uh, for as long as I can remember, a very vivid dreamer. Dreamwalking is where lucid dreaming and out-of-body experience intersect. Right. Uh, it is the ability to travel, reach out and communicate specifically through the medium of dreams or the hypnagogic state, that state in between sleeping and waking. Right. Uh, it's something that is adjacent to a lot of shamanic techniques mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't like uh, conflating it with shamanism because it is not trained. It is not rooted in any of the cultures uh, that, that traditional shamanism come from. And I don't want to, to make it seem like that that's something that's appropriative uh, because I think that it, there is a core psychic ability that can be harnessed through multiple different approaches and contextualized through different uh, societal approaches. Right. Uh, so it's a bit more than remote viewing. It is. It's, and it's a little bit different from astral projection and astral travel. Uh, and the difference is a little bit more in, uh, with dream walking, you go in to go out. Gotcha. Right. And that's kind of hard to explain if you haven't had some of those experiences, mm-hmm. but you can harness those imaginative states you can harness those interior states there is a point where you are in uh, a construct of your own mind but you use that as a liminal space to then move elsewhere uh, either to follow connections and pathways to other people uh, or to other places Uh, it can be a vehicle for full like, like astral projection to like physically be somewhere well physically in air yeah. quotes like like be present in a space um and not merely in somebody else's dream space uh but it's it is fascinating it's something that i've done uh since since i was 10 now uh wrote a book about it it definitely encouraged some of the the psychology parts of my degrees to just understand this vast supercomputer we carry around in a yeah. side of our skulls because there's so much that it can do. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. We barely touch on what the human brain can do, really. Yeah. But I wonder, while you were talking, I just got the impression that it's in this state that actually so many people see loved ones that have just passed over. Yeah. One of the single most reported paranormal psychic experiences uh and it's been recorded for 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 centuries at this point Mm -hmm. is the death announcing dream uh that point where it's not only a death a person in crisis 
It might be a close call. It might be just an incredibly emotional, traumatic experience. On an instinctive level, we know how to communicate with one another over a distance. And we are most receptive when we are asleep and dreaming, especially if we are untrained, Mm. because we don't have the same obstacles that we do when we're awake. Our waking consciousness, there's so many distractions. It's so easy to discount what we feel. Like if somebody just crosses our mind and there's that brief glimpse of, I think someone's in trouble and you're sitting, you know, in your cubicle at work and you've got, you know, a deadline or something like yeah. you just sort of like, you know, it's, it's like a speed bump in your day. You barely think about it. When you're asleep and dreaming, there's a lot more receptivity and we have fewer uh, material world distractions. Absolutely. The other thing that, yeah, the other thing that I've noticed specifically with dream walking, dream telepathy, and similar communications is when it is another mind reaching into you, reaching into your mental space, you notice it because it's different. Mm-hmm. You know, your your regular dreams uh, have a familiarity to them. There's a pattern and a shape and a feel. And when another mind interposes itself in there, it changes the shape of it. Mm. And the very fact that you notice it means that you are more likely to remember that experience when you wake up. That's actually ironic. I had one just last night, actually. And I don't remember seeing this person's face, but he was male and he was a Southern male. And I remember him very, very clearly because he had this absolutely the broadest cultured southern accent I've ever heard and I lived in North Carolina for a while so I was used to the southern Mm. accents but this was the the broadest cultured southern accent I'd ever heard and I thought oh you know what's this person doing in my dream it wasn't even you know just there out of the blue I I, he must have been talking to me for I have no recollection of what he was saying to me but I just remember him leaving I've had experiences like that where it's not only a crisis, where it's reconnecting with someone that you were friends with in a previous life. Mm. Uh, Sometimes there's teaching dreams that I have. Uh, So I I would have these, and uh, one of the benefits of being like like a personality on TV that people know is that I get a chance to have conversations that I wouldn't otherwise get confirmation about. Right. Uh, I was at a convention uh, several years ago now, and there was this woman who was in one of my classes, and she just kept staring at me. And, you know, I can never tell, you know, are you staring at me because I'm six foot one and physically imposing? Are you staring because you saw me on TV? Are you staring because, you know, I remind you of someone? I, I don't even know. So, so eventually she works up the uh, gumption to say something, and she's like, I... I thought you were my spirit guide is how she starts this conversation. I'm like, eh? So she's like, I don't, I don't expect you to believe this, but for the past five years, I have had these dreams at night, not all, not every night, but, and she started to describe having like these sort of, like there would be a group of people in a space and I would be teaching things. And she was describing what I would teach. And I was like, yep, yep. That, 
that A, that sounds like me. The space you're describing is a space I've been to in several dreams. And it often feels like several people just sitting around having like a salon style conversation, uh, sharing stuff and just having the confirmation that these are not merely dreams that my brain is using to entertain itself and like, you know, memory consolidation of things that I've read in the day that some of those people that I'm just having a conversation with in my sleep might be other dreamers Interesting, mm. and that we are converging in, in space and in, in talking with one another and not all of them are alive either. And that's okay too. That's really interesting. Isn't it? In your book, you say this, psychic vampirism is depicted as best as an affliction and at worst as a conscious choice to victimize others. And yeah, that's a really good definition of how the outside world sees vampires as they've been depicted in the movies and and romanticized. And do you feel that attitude is changing with the work that you've done over this time period? I can say that there have been changes in attitudes over the past few decades, um, largely because of the work that I've done. Mm-hmm. I, it's it's really interesting having been so influential where I, I've now hit the point where I'll run across like younger people online who weren't alive when I first started writing this stuff. And they don't necessarily know that what they learned came from me. So we'll start a conversation. They don't necessarily like we're, we're in, we're in a, a video game and we're just in the video game chat and something about psychic vampirism comes up and they start teaching me my own stuff. <laughs> That's very cool. That actually must make you feel really satisfied knowing that you've achieved something. It, I did what I set out to do. I, yeah. It wasn't about like, I want my name attached to this. Yeah. It was, I want people like me to not have to struggle with, oh, does this make me evil? Like, I've got yeah. this ability. Like, is it, a, is it an ability? Is it a handicap? Is it some sort of like evil curse that I, you know, I must be compelled to do evil and prey upon people? No, it's just the way your psychic stuff works. It's the way you interface with energy and like everything, you get to choose how you use it. Absolutely. And that reminds me of another point that you brought up in your book about just because you're dark doesn't mean you're evil and this is something that I constantly say to when I started this podcast part of my reasoning for starting it was to help educate people entertainment of course but education as well and one of the things I constantly say in my in various episodes and in my group is that people here equate white with light love positivity and black and is negative and evil and it's just not like that at all that's actually incorrect just because you come from a dark place doesn't mean you're evil no it's we are so very married to our binaries Mm. in this culture in the same way that we like to put things into boxes we like to see them as pairs of opposites and define those opposites as if they're not always somehow interconnected with one another. Uh, you know, he who stands in the brightest light casts the darkest shadow. And you know, the things that are plunged into the deepest darkness, that's when you can see the stars. Mm. So 
it it does require shifting our way of looking at the world from a, a pure, stark, and honestly artificial binary yes. that there's only white and light, and that is equates with good, and there's only black and dark, and that equates with bad, and that's yeah. that's just wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is. It's yeah. wrong. It's misleading. It's unfair. Uh, it's not how the natural world works. It's it's not what we're surrounded with. It's just, it's convenient language. Mm. Um, sometimes it makes good storytelling, uh, but it's not how the world is. Night by itself is not an evil thing. Uh, and for folks who identify with the vampire as a magical archetype, there is definitely a strong connection to the nocturnal hours, to the darker side of the year when it's longer nights. And, and not, in my opinion, because it's spooky or dark or like, you know, edgelord kind of stuff. It's the world gets quieter and yeah. more introspective. Yeah. Uh, you know, I work in the paranormal community and paranormal television. Everybody's like, well, ghost hunters are always hunting ghosts at night. And, you know, ghosts are active all the time. I'm like, but also there is less human activity yeah. at night. So you are more likely to pick up on the subtle things. Mm-hmm. Again, he who stands in the brightest light casts the darkest shadow. But when you turn the lights down, there are things that you might not have noticed otherwise. Absolutely. Myself personally in my life, I've always been drawn to night. I worked night shift, you know, 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. for most of my nursing career because I prefer that time. Uh, I'm finding as I get older that my body I can't stay awake like it used to over those time mm. periods, but I still prefer the dark of the night to the light of the day for the reason being that it's so much calmer, you can feel things better, you can hear, your senses are more alert generally. Yeah. Whether that's a primal thing or, you know, a safety thing from the throwback years, but that's what I find personally. You also say in your book that we are beings who walk both worlds at once. And that's why I called my show Walk in the Shadowlands, because that's how I actually see myself as well as a, as a psychic medium and as a working with star people. It's having that foot in both camps. And it can be extraordinarily difficult to live like that. Yeah. People don't realize unless they've experienced it themselves. So I totally have an understanding of how it's been for you on that level. It's not an easy path to walk and for you to have found your way. And I, I also recall in your book, you're talking about your grandfather and telling yeah. your grandfather about yourself and his reaction. Can you share that with us? Because I think that's actually quite a beautiful story. Yeah, the a little bit of context is I did not get to meet my maternal grandfather until I was in my 20s um, because of family things. He and my grandmother had a very bitter divorce. Um, and so he was uh, pretty much run off uh, by, by her and her brothers. But my mom reconnected and um, she was dying of breast cancer. He had moved down to where she lived in Texas to take care of her. Uh, and I met him through her and we we connected he he was this big rangy barrel chested six foot eight uh world war ii vet he had been in um in france before d-day doing things 
that he, he would not talk about even. I, I know he had a bunch of medals. He was a light heavyweight champion of the European theater in 43, like a much larger, a larger than life figure. Right. Uh, but because he was part of the great generation, I just wasn't sure about talking. I, I've just met this person, you know, he's, he's in his early eighties and how do I tell him, Oh, hi, your grandkid is a vampire, by the way. Now the psychic stuff was, was normal too. Yeah. For him. It, it was something that was also on that side of the family. Uh, so that wasn't weird or strange, but he knew I had a book coming out and he was very excited and he really wanted to be supportive, but he wanted to know what it was about. And it was the Psychic Vampire Codex. So I sat him down at the kitchen table at my mom's house in North Texas. And I was like, okay, so I'm a psychic vampire and this is what that means. And as I start to explain, you know, well, it's a person who needs to regularly and actively take human vital energy. And, you know, sometimes you do it through touch and he starts crying at, at the kitchen table, like just very silently weeping. And it, I, I slowly become aware that he's, you know, in, in that very like, I, I am trained to be a manly man and I'm not going to like show the, show my emotions, but I'm also a very soft hearted, emotional guy. So now I am going to break down. And so I'm used to people his age at that time crying because they're sure I'm going to hell and they're going to have to pray for me. Uh, and so I'm prepared for the worst. So I'm like, grandfather, are, are, are you okay? Like, is this too much for you? And he's like, there's a word for us. And it felt like the room just became absolutely silent. Like it was just him and I, like the whole world narrowed down and he came clean about, uh, he'd, he'd been known um, as a womanizer. Uh, he, at the time, was juggling five different uh, relationships. <laughs> and, no, 80, 80, 81 years old, and my mom had to just make the, the, the rule, please do not date anybody of childbearing years. Uh, <laughs> but he was, but... It, he's like, well, I, I have to change people up. Like, I don't ever want to exhaust one person because I'm taking from them and they don't understand what I'm taking from them. And I can't tell them what I'm taking from them. So I make sure that they have the best time while I'm taking it. And, you know, realizing that like this whole aspect of his life had been lived in secret uh, without a real good word for it, uh, that it had impacted his relationships, uh, his marriage, uh, you know, how he chose to, to interact with people, uh, how he felt he could never talk to people he was most intimate with mm. and explain this key part of who he was and, and, and how he experienced the world. Uh, so, yeah, he was weeping at the kitchen table because he didn't realize that there was anybody else like him uh, had never really had the opportunity given you know, his age group to talk to people. Uh, the psychic aspect of his experience was a little too much in most cases for his cohort. Um, so yeah, it was, it was pretty revelatory. Uh, it was intense. And uh, we were already pretty, pretty close at that point. 
meeting him made it very clear. My, my grandmother would sometimes make some, you know, side of the mouth comments about how I reminded her of him. And yes, I didn't look like anybody on her side of the family, but I surely looked like him. Wow. <laughs> we, we never like, like that nature nurture thing is fascinating because I have personality quirks and habits and, and, you know, likes and dislikes that are clearly from him. And I did not have anything to do with him until I was in my twenties. So right. genetics, spiritual inheritance, whatever it was. Oh, I, I like, I really feel for your granddad because how alone he must have felt all that time. Honestly, uh, I'm quite emotional about it. You know, I really feel for what he must have gone through and how many out there still are like that to this day who don't have that support and don't have that knowing that this is what they are. This is an aspect of who they are. And um, regardless of whether that's vampire or whether that's Wiccan or whether that's whatever it is, you know, to mm -hmm. feel like you're alone and not have anyone you can turn to, that's a, an incredibly, incredibly difficult place to be so I'm so glad that your granddad at least had you that he could talk to about that at that stage yeah yeah we we had some really very cool conversations about that uh, and it was good to actually like get to know him as a person yeah I can I can well imagine so that was an incredibly, incredibly touching story. Thank you for sharing that, Michelle. It was just beautiful, just beautiful, actually. The other thing that really stood out for me was that when you started acknowledging who you are, you began a group of kind of people coming and you started by playing a game that was popular at that stage, and I can't remember the name of it. Were you uh, kind of like a role-playing thing? Oh, oh, yeah. Um, Vampire the Masquerade. Yes, that's it. That's it. So that's kind of how you kind of got yourself out into the community, apart from your e-signs and, and that. Well, in the, the 70s, 80s, and 90s, especially in the States, there, again, the, the satanic panic. By the 80s and the 90s, when I started to actually like, get active, there was such pressure to not engage with anything esoteric or occult. Um, even energy work was a, a little dodgy. Yeah. If it wasn't like aggressively white light, it was automatically seen as bad and suspect. Yeah. So finding places where you could connect to people uh, and especially places where you could talk about things like witchcraft Mm -hmm. occultism vampirism and have like genuine conversations those places and spaces were few and far between uh, there were a couple of interlocking communities where it was okay the gothic subculture so smoky goth clubs with black clad people listening to dreary music <laughs> uh, you know, over in the corner off the side of the dance floor, there were usually deep conversations, um, bad poetry, <laughs> and also uh, like esoteric metaphysical uh, conjecture. Mm. And in 1991, there was a role-playing game that came out. And, and for folks who don't know, uh, you probably would be familiar with Dungeons and Dragons, which was a role-playing game that became very popular, is really popular now. 
Uh, and, and a role-playing game is just, it's collaborative storytelling. Uh, people sit around, uh, they create characters, and they tell a story within a certain world. And different role-playing games give you a different world structure. Uh, Dungeons & Dragons is high fantasy uh, with a lot of inspiration from Tolkien. And Vampire the Masquerade was dark fantasy or urban fantasy with a lot of inspiration from Anne Rice. Um, no, no way to pretend it, it didn't have Anne Rice and Hammer horror films and uh, like, like all of the 70s vampire movies all just smashed together. Uh, and the role-playing LARP, live action role-playing game, uh, it allowed for folks to meet up socially, uh, play and engage in basically uh, improvisational acting as they played with their characters. And then afterwards, as we explored this urban fantasy world and all of the aspects of it, we would meet at coffee houses or all night diners or the aforementioned goth club and talk about the elements of the game that, you know, why did you choose this thing about your character or why were, why was this particular occult element? Like what does the vampire really mean to you? It became a safe place to ask questions that you might be embarrassed to talk about just with anybody like walking down the street, the, a space that my grandfather would have shined. Like it, it would have been perfect for him to have yeah. a place where you could just talk about it without the sense of being judged for, I mean, we're all here, we're playing a role-playing game. We're all pretending to be vampires. So we already know we're weird. <laughs> that is really cool that you had that. And that was the beginning of your forming your group. In the book, you talk about, well, group for want of a bit, affiliations, is that a better word? Like, kind of like tribal affiliations? Yeah, well, I'd had basically study groups, I, conglomerates of people for you know many, many years, but I would say that the, the vampire role-playing games, because I started to run them at national conventions like Gen Con and Origins, uh, it gave me an access to a, a much larger national, and in some cases, international community, and the space where people were traveling from all over and could converge. Right. Uh, and that, that was uh, a pretty unique vehicle for the kind of face-to-face -face conversations about extraordinary things that that really can only happen face to face. Mm -hmm. uh, not to knock uh, internet communication, not to knock you know pen friend stuff, but when we're talking about really off the wall beliefs and the way people will interpret them, there is a certain visceral reality in, in watching someone recount this to you where it is easier to tell that this is something that is true for them. Right. that they've thought about, that they really intend, and that it is important to them. It's not something that they're making up or that they're saying to get a rise out of you. Like It's so easy for people to, to sell you a line of bullcrap online mm. um, or you know, over the phone or over an email, where face-to-face, -face, there is a different dynamic. Yes. Learning to trust one another, I think, was the key part there because you know most of us were in the same boat my grandfather was in 
hardly able to trust ourselves. Yeah, these are extraordinary experiences and you know, extreme interpretations, um, you know, leading to beliefs of like, you know, am, am I, how human is my soul? Like, what is the nature of my being? Like, what, what is this energy thing? And, and why do I have to take it? Deep questions and conclusions that are so far beyond the pale at the time uh, that we needed to feel comfortable with one another and trust one another and be able to be in that sort of, um, Conventions, particularly, uh, this is going to seem like a divergence, but it, it, it'll come back around. Uh, one of the scholars I studied is a fellow named Victor Turner, and he wrote about rites of passage, and, and particularly the, the way in which religious ritual is more about a psychosocial experience, mm. creating a liminal space outside of our ordinary existence and thus outside of our cultural and societal affiliations. Our usual um, class structure breaks down and we develop what he called communitas, uh, which is just a fancy way of saying community, but, but a, a moment of community that exists outside of our familiar and accepted structure, which then allows for uh, interactions that might not happen within our accepted everyday structure. Right. And conventions, even geek conventions, role-playing conventions, Dragon Con, Gen Con, whatever, uh, Comic Con, they are a type of pilgrimage. They are a type of place where people have traveled to they have left behind those structures. They're there for this, this unified experience, a kind of ritualized experience. It is a liminal space and it promotes that communitas, right. that sense of community where you can just be you. You don't have to pretend, uh, you don't have to worry about like, you know, are you talking to somebody who's above your station? Are you talking to someone do you have a right to have this conversation with this person? You're just there interacting with one another in your truth as authentically as possible. Uh, and without that, I, I think it would have taken many more years to develop the community that we had. Yes, I can see that. And then you met, think, Dr. is it Dr. Jonathan? Gosh, this gentleman had been looking for you for some time. I can't think of his name. He's a sanguinarian vampire. And he had the oh okay yeah uh, Todd yeah I think you're talking about Todd he he had a a fairly sizable community in New York City yes yes he's he's gone by so many different pen names and and nom de plumes that like it yeah that guy hard to keep up with it it really is like and he he had been looking for you for some time. There was a bit of a misunderstanding when you got together, but you sorted mm-hmm. that out and you soon became friends. And he asked if you'd like to join his community or merge with his community. It was sort of a loose federation of pre pre-established groups. Yes. So uh, like a like a network of I'm trying to think of what so, so back then, uh, especially with like, with like websites, you would have web rings where 
this person had a website and it was about haunted dolls and somebody else had a website about haunted dolls mm-hmm. and they would like kind of form this internet interconnected community where if you went to one, you could kind of connect to the other. And it was a similar concept of, uh, you know, my group was its own thing. And also we were now connected to this larger group. Uh, the, the one thing that was required was we needed a name. Uh, and instead of witchcraft covens, uh, they called their groups houses Right. And so my group became House Keperu, uh, which is from an Egyptian word for to transform, to metamorphosize, to become. Right. Uh, it's it's actually uh, one of one of the creation stories, uh, and it's a play on this word Keperu. And uh, it's it starts off Keperi, Keper, Keperu, Keperkuyum, Keperun, Kepri, Keparum, Septepi. I became, and the becoming became, I became by becoming the god Kepra, god of becomings. And I did this through myself in the first time, loosely translated. Um, and it's it's that sort of like rhythmic, it, it's, I first encountered it in uh, Lucy Lamy's uh, Egyptian Mysteries, and both the play on words and the feel of it and that idea of transforming and the creation of the world through the transformation of self, like spoke to me on a profound level. Right. Uh, and so Kepru. And you kept your house name and you merged with these other groups. So you're kind of like a federation of groups. Yeah. And you all abide by a basic set of tenets, although um, you keep your own individuality. Am I correct in that? Okay, yeah, cool. And has that that helped the vampire community, do you feel? When it still existed, yes. Uh, And it, it, it is, it's dissolved and, and everyone's kind of gone off to their own little things. A lot of that had to do with, uh, as things changed, um, just I, honestly cultural shifts, yeah. some of it being uh, that aspect of the community was in its heyday when there was a lot of interaction at clubs, right. when we had a lot of physical in-person social events. Uh, and as that became less of a thing, as a lot of people's interactions became more online, it was a lot less necessary to have this sort of federated thing. It's, it's on one hand, the, the community is much broader. Uh, there are many, many more people. It's also less concentrated in individual groups. There, there are still groups out there that exist, houses and covens and orders and whatnot. And there are so many individuals who are doing their thing as solitary practitioners who find their community online on like discord groups and uh, Facebook pages and just, you know, engage as they wish uh, without necessarily like directly involving themselves in like an initiatory system. Right. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't realize that it had kind of, but 
of course, with the world situation as it is, that could no longer be a thing anyway at the moment, or at least for the past couple of years and for the foreseeable future. So online is really the only way you guys can communicate now, really, isn't it? Um, On a a physical level, that is. I, I, I deliberately haven't asked you some specific questions because I don't think, like, personal questions about feeding and stuff like that are necessary Mm. so that's why I haven't asked you because it's about the overall view and people can go on to Amazon and get your books the Psychic Vampire Codex is a fascinating book I wish I'd managed to finish reading it all because it's so interesting and it's for anybody really not just for people who identify as vampires it's a good educational book yeah, there's a lot of stuff on energy work in there, um, dream walking. Uh, I I made a point of having that be like my first big publication. I'd, I'd done a bunch of small press stuff for 15 years up to that. Uh, as a note for people, it is also hosted in perpetuity. An early version of it is on sacredtexts.com, sacred-texts. Uh, the person who initially put that site together, their vision was to collect uh, the sacred writings of the world. And they broadened that to include all of the like, like fringe and alternative beliefs, like everything that they could get their hands on. They approached me specifically and asked for permission to host a copy of the Codex and a copy of the Vampire Ritual book. That's so, awesome. and it's it's an older version than the the wiser version, uh, which in some cases the wording is a little bit more raw, and in some cases it's a little bit more honest. Uh, <laughs> not to say that the wiser version isn't honest, but when you're writing for a publisher, they will sometimes be like, "Could you tone this language down a little bit?" Yeah, the the editing can sometimes make a a huge difference. That's really exciting to hear that for you. And it's great that it's out there for anybody who has questions about themselves. They can go and look up or they can look your book up on Amazon or I'm sure any of the other online booksellers. It's worth getting. It's worth reading. It's just really Really, uh, I'm going to finish reading it once I finish our conversation. It'll probably take me another couple of days to get through it, but at least I won't have to write notes this time. As far as the vampire aspect goes, do you have any more books coming out about the vampire side? I will be releasing an anniversary updated version of the Psychic Vampire Codex. So that that is on the table. We got the rights back uh, and... Uh, there's there's some language that I want to update. There's some things that I didn't feel comfortable sharing uh, in 2004 when that edition came out. You know, the, the original was written in 1994, so it's oh, wow. it's, it's it's a very old um, piece of work. And the thing that I really like about where we're at right now, I mean, there's there's so many things I could complain about the state of the world. Uh, in the state of the United States especially, but broadly speaking, we're having more open conversations about energy, psychic experience, identity, uh, liminal states, what, how all of these things converge. Like when I wrote 
that and published it through Wiser, there was still a huge distinction between the vampire community and the witchcraft community and the psychics and the paranormal people and the UFO. And we're moving to a point where folks are recognizing that we have many things in common. And in many ways, our labels are, are arbitrary. They, they are, in some cases, just a, a useful tool but they artificially separate us. Yes, I absolutely and, agree. Yeah, and 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 I think with with work like um, there's there's a husband and wife team, um, Dana and Greg Newkirk, who have a show called Hellier, that is pretty much like, hey, <laughs> it's not just ghosts. Let's talk to ultra terrestrials and all of like nothing is off the table for them. And um, John Tenney is, is another person who's like, no, really, like, could we just stop with all of the, all of the pretending like this is different, that it's mm. separate. Mm. We're all peering into the mystery of something beyond uh, and, and touched by deeper truths. Uh, and I want to make sure that I have an edition that reflects that. So that's really cool. Yeah. I'm trying to think of other, because there's, there's, I've got so many irons in the fire. Uh, another ritual book. That's, that's the other thing that we're just finishing up with is, you know, House Kepru is uh, an initiatory group. Um, we have seasonal rituals. We have initiatory rituals. We've been doing that for 20 plus years. I wrote all of that stuff. I have compiled an archive of all of our rituals as they developed my uh my theory for like why you put ritual together because we're distinct from uh a pagan or most wiccan groups because it's not about gods and goddesses we're not running rituals as worship we're running rituals in that victor turner sense of this is a psychosocial event where we connect energetically we connect spiritually but it is about this moment in time and this group of people and our collective intent. Right. I totally understand that. Like I always say to people, ritual is a tool like a laser. It's a tool that focuses the beam. It focuses your intent. Yes. And, and creates a liminal space in which to do that. Like you yes. create a boundary, you have a container uh, and in some ways, it's about removing yourself from your ordinary existence. You're stepping willfully into an extraordinary space uh, and connecting in, in levels that, you know, aren't honestly quite natural to us, but we get distracted from because of all the noise in our ordinary existence. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, we do. And it's kind of like grounding yourself again, isn't it? And uh, grounding yourself in, in in what's important to you and grounding yourself. The gra more grounded you are, the more spiritual you can be because it's about the balance. I know themes that will come up in, in all of my books, and as, as I'm sure you've seen with the Psychic Vampire Codex, is intent, conscious engagement with who and what we are, uh, and taking an active role in engaging with all of that. So self-exploration with an aim toward understanding like who and what you are and what do you actually want? And then actualizing it, like, like doing the things that you do 
with intent. Uh, don't let it be by accident. Don't let it be unconscious. Harness it. Absolutely. I totally agree with it. That's where we'll leave my conversation with Michelle Bollinger for this episode. Be sure and catch us, not, not in two weeks as normal, but next week for the conclusion of our conversation. This episode's bumper music was called Dark Metal at a Reverse Dimension from Crypt of Insomnia. If you enjoy this podcast and have considered becoming a sponsor, now's a great time to join. Just head over to patreon.com forward slash mcc15 and sign up now. As a patron, you get early access to the podcast episodes and a special members only page on the podcast website www.walkingtheshadowlands.com that has bits that end up on the digital cutting board and little extras like full raw unedited video conversations with guests, EVPs caught during the conversations and so much more. Also you can download full written transcripts of each episode and you get my absolute appreciation and gratitude patreon.com forward slash mcc15 for just the cost of a cup of coffee a month. So you don't miss out on an episode, make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcasting platform. This podcast is available on all free podcasting platforms, including iHeartRadio and Pandora as well. Also, if you have Alexa, simply say these four words, open Walking the Shadowlands and Alexa will play our latest episode for you. Check out our Facebook page, Walking the Shadowlands, our Twitter feed, at Shadowlands10, TikTok under walking underscored the underscored Shadowlands. Like and follow for teasers of our upcoming episodes. If you don't have a smartphone, then you can listen to the episodes from the podcast website, www.walkingtheshadowlands.com. For those who are impaired, there's a full written transcript of each episode on the website, so you don't miss out at all. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your workmates about our show. Encourage them to listen and to subscribe also. The more, the merrier. Thanks for listening to this episode. Kakite ano oya koi. I'll see you again. Thanks for listening. 